Welcome to the Politics and Public Finance Podcast, in-depth conversations that bring unique insights into the nexus between how governments manage our finances and the work of elective representative bodies such as parliaments. You're listening to Politics and Public Finance Podcast with Jeff Dubrow. Welcome back to the Politics and Public Finance, uh, a Nexus PFM podcast. I'm here with uh, Carol Chan, Kevin DeVoe, and Charmaine Rodriguez talking about the effect of the trucker protests in uh, Canada on the uh, prospects and effect of for democracy. Um, Charmaine, I'm, I'm sure you're going to want to respond to what Carol said, but I'll just throw in an additional question for you. Um, I think one of the things that that we are seeing is that authoritarian government governments of authoritarian tendencies in democracies are starting to narrow the gap between authoritarianism and democracy. What's your perception in terms of the impact of the kind of protests that we're having here, the protests you're having in Australia, uh, on low and middle income countries that are themselves emerging 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 democracies? Thanks, Jeff. And as Carol did, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional land on which I'm coming to you from, which is the Wurundjeri land. Um, it's interesting. If I can quickly respond to some of the stuff we heard before the break as well, I think uh, finding a middle point between Kevin and Carol, for me, the issue around a lot of the truckers' protests and how different political parties have dealt with it is the concept of legitimate grievance. So apparently the truckers are all middle-class disenfranchised people and we should understand them. But black people apparently had no legitimate grievance. Black Lives Matters was just angry coloured people and feminist marches was just angry women because our grievance is cast as angry most times by a media that is predominantly white and led by men and a political class that is predominantly white and led by men. Whether or not they see it, a lot of our leaders, I think, see themselves in these men. There, but for the grace of God go I. But they were never going to be a disenfranchised black person. We had the same thing happen uh, a couple of years ago. We had our Black Lives Matters protests. We don't treat our Indigenous people well. And the Prime Minister was very clear. You're all being self-indulgent, COVID, protest, go home, terrible. This then segues actually neatly um into your second question. Uh, So, Kevin, the interesting thing is we have had well-organised protests, but what were they around? The environment. And what does our government not want to address? We're the biggest climate change laggards in the world. So we introduced legislation two years ago that if you locked on to a piece of infrastructure, you could be jailed. We've been arresting environmental protesters for some time. Uh, Tasmania, one of our states, had quite draconian legislation, which if I remember correctly, I think it got struck down by the courts because it was so against a basic sense of rights, you know, um, massive fines, massive jail terms for tying yourself to a tree, which was being classes, infrastructure that was critical, that you'd somehow, it was the equivalent of tying yourself to a nuclear reactor or something. Um, So I actually worry that even the conversation about, like, most Australians will not understand this authoritarian fascism concept, but I worry that we are frogs in a pot. We have the very quiet, it started with 9-11, surveillance, we're just doing it for your own security, we're taking care of you. Um, we, I think, are possibly more open to paternalism, like paternalism than a lot of other countries because also remember a rare country, although like you, 
we got our independence by it being given to us, not fighting for it. So we didn't fight for our democracy. We don't understand it that well. Um, we're far away from other influences. Um, and so, and we like, as I said, oh, sorry, I was going to say, we don't have a Bill of Rights. So we're also one of three countries in the world that has no constitutional Bill of Rights. You also had this challenge. So we're not a rights-based culture and we have a remarkable amount of trust in government until they, you know, come for us. So I, I guess I want to throw that into the mix for, you know, Kevin, Carol and you as well, because I don't think people see it as authoritarianism. We got told after September 11, we're protecting you. And they haven't yet realised they're not protecting us. <laughs> this is now a power grab. Um, I still believe I got for corporations for this and that, um, but that's, that's why I'm not even sure that's quite the right question, but there is something there. Yeah, so, so uh, I, I would, I mean, this is my own personal view, I would consider Trumpism to be authoritarian. And I think there's been a fairly large movement of people who have said that if Trump is reelected in 2024, uh, the, the United States could be an authoritarian state by 2032. Um, and there are, you know, there's a lot go that we're seeing in the press about the United States, about, about um, the Trump machine trying to make sure that the right people in their decentralized electoral system are able to uh, influence the vote in a way that will, will, will get Trump reelected. Um, so in that sense, I, I see that um, narrowing the gap between authoritarianism and democracy. Um, but I wonder when countries see, when, when, when some of the countries that we work in see um, fissures in our democratic system that we're not familiar with. Like here in Canada, we are not familiar. Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, Carol. Um, we're not familiar, we're familiar with protests, but we're not familiar with, um, you know, uh, the, the, an organizer of a protest demanding to see the governor general and the opposition leaders. Very much like I, as a consultant, if I was in a new town, I would, you know, I'd, I'd want to drop in on a few people myself and try to drop some business. But the idea, diluted as it is, that you could somehow change the government this is this has got taken taken things to a new level, and this is really the issue around the threat to democracy that I want to I, I want to talk about. Um, we are Charmaine is saying two words: white privilege, and, and I think we should we should get into that conversation. But I think um, this is something that I that I want to hear more from. Uh, uh, maybe we'll start with Kevin on this: is that you know Canada is a country founded on peace, order, and good government, and we're always looking down at the United States, which is founded on life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and sort of saying there go those those americans with their guns why is this happening here now kevin you've kind of already addressed that but why don't you take another crack at it um by the way thank you this has been a really good conversation i'm very happy to um, be part of it um why is it happening here? Um, well, let me throw another um, another another angle into this, another variable, and that is fundamentalist religion. I'm going to be the cat amongst the pigeons maybe today, but um, there was a story out of the CBC a couple of days ago. I just posted it on LinkedIn, actually. Uh, they went and interviewed a lot of the people in Ottawa, and most of them come from small fundamentalist evangelical churches. Uh, but I can make another example. India right now, I forget what state it is, Charmaine, where there's the whole hijab banning going on. And there is, uh, have you been following that? I don't know, Charmaine, but, um, but you have a significant Hindu population that has been riled up to be anti-Muslim and to do things like ban hijabs 
for girls in schools, for example. So this isn't just about Christianity. I think it's about small groups that um, it's about small groups that are becoming echo chambers, whether it be because it's at church and they're hearing from a pastor or uh, from an imam or whether it's um, because they're on Facebook. But there's not the dialogue that's going on that we had. We had we had one source of media. People heard it all from the same source historically. There were conversations that went on. People talked to each other. So that lack of social capital, as it's called, there was a book about 20 years ago called Bowling Alone out of, out of the U.S., but it was about the fact that people don't talk to each other anymore. And if we don't talk to each other, this is what you get. Um, and it's interesting because COVID-19 in itself uh, laid bare certain inequalities. That was the interesting thing, was that it seemed like the world was actually coming more together at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, where people could understand um, that, you know, the, the, the uh, women who were uh, low-wage workers on the front lines of the grocery stores were kind of more the heroes and the doctors who were refusing to see patients who were, were you know, doing, doing their, their, their consultations online. But then things seem to have changed. Um, and, and now we're seeing the injustice from another perspective, which is that injustice of how, how one pro group of protesters uh, has, or a large group of protesters has been treated so fundamentally differently um, Charmaine, you alluded to, not alluded, you mentioned the fact that, that there was, um, uh, the, that the prime minister, when there was misogynistic uh, comments made at a protest, um, that the prime minister had made reference to the fact that isn't this great that we can all protest in a democracy. Before I go to you, maybe Carol, you can talk a little bit about what's been happening in the capital of the province of New Brunswick uh, in Fredericton um, in the last couple of days, because the protests, of course, have migrated across the country. I'm going to make a poor news reporter, but uh, but we have had our own protests, and um, and I think what has stood out to me at least, um, and was most recently discussed um, in the news, is really the the silence around some of the protest associates, I guess you might want to call them, that that are bearing the flags of um, of the Confederacy or swastikas and. Um, the real lack of reaction from government or or most other people around that, uh, which is troubling. Um, I think it is, again, a reflection of what's already inside people's heads. As I mentioned earlier, I don't know that um, it's, it's reflecting that much of a change in a shift in attitude except that, first of all, um, they feel like they're comfortable enough going down Main Street effectively with this. And it is tacitly condoned in a way because nothing's being said otherwise about it. And as I said earlier, we all know better. We all know better that it should not be that way. And we now need to do better. Um, and I guess to go back to your question about peace, order and good governance, Jeff, I just wanted to touch on that because I think it's really interesting that that's um, that you raised that for two reasons. Because I, first of all, I think as a lawyer, I, my my brain goes to oh, it's an administrative tool that does division of power stuff. So it's really supposed to be a fight between the provincial government and the federal government, and the, and not between big government and 
it's citizens. Um, it's supposed to, you're, you're supposed to have these natural, I guess, um, societies, which are the provinces or the local societies, which are the provinces that have decided that there's this greater good called Canada that we're all going to figure out how to play in the sandbox with. And that is going to trump the, the local laws and customs um, through things like POG. Um, and then when, when we look at it as a question of I had to Google it again because it's been a long time since I've been at law school. But when I did Google it, it um, there is a mention of how peace, order, and good governance, I think you see it also in the media a lot, is really um, now viewed as part of the Canadian national identity in terms of, you know, contrasting it with um, the American national identity or the French one. Um, so... I think it's really an important piece to think about in a democracy because peace order and good governance is really a, an administrative tool to um, decide that one, perhaps even a minority of values trumps a, 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 a broader majority. And then if you stick that in the democratic context, peace and order and good governance can often be very undemocratic. Um, it can involve uh, police st standing in front of a, um, a protest and saying you can't cross this line anymore because it's, it's not orderly or your protest is not peaceful, your speech is not peaceful. And so I, I think that it begs a further question of what what is our democracy about? Um, and, and so that, I think, is the question that we have avoided for a long time in Canada. Again, like Charmaine pointed out, because we haven't fought for it. Um, so when you don't have to fight for something, you don't often have to contemplate what it is you're living in. Um, I yeah, think and, and in fact, the, the, the peace, order, and good government could also be seen as a, because this is, a, you know, it's tied to previous colonial structures and, and to enforcement of the status quo, which is what we tend to see when it comes to um, police enforcement of, of, uh, of social justice groups like, like Charmaine made reference to. So I guess the question now is, how do we fix it? Um, you, you, I, I still believe... Um, I, Carol, I respect what you said about from your vantage point as a woman, and I certainly can't second guess that, that nothing's changed. Uh, I, I, on, a, on a policy level, I, I do see some, uh, some movement um, uh, for how uh, gender equality has been treated and how diversity has been treated, um, again, again, at the sort of by, by, by the executive branch um, or by the, by, the, by the federal government. Um, but I guess the question, the question that needs to be asked is, um, so you've got, if you've got that and then you've got um, increasing radicalism in Canada, a poll out today saying that 16% would support the People's Party of Canada, which would have been completely unheard of even a few weeks ago. How do we reconcile these? Uh, Kevin, let me, let me start with you on that. How do we reconcile? Um, can I just go back one step there and just say, um, you know, around peace order and good government, you know, we just had two years of COVID pandemic with strict restrictions. We never had the federal government impose the Emergencies Act. It was done through the provinces. And I suspect in Charmaine, it might have been the same, right? They have enough power to do this, to deal with the trucker convoy. I actually worry that imposing the Emergency Act 
will do two things. It will embolden people to say, you see, democracy is being, you know, uh, usurped or taken away, um, you know, with the stroke of a pen or the vote of the parliament. Uh, and secondly, it's a slippery slope. You're going to you're going to impose a, a significant, which is basically martial law. And I'm not saying everyone here has a, you know, a soldier in front of them, but it is a form of it. Um, you're going to bring that in for some protests in Ottawa. And I agree, it's probably not a great situation there. But what about in five years? This is the first time this has been brought in. In five years, you know, a conservative government decides that, you know, an indigenous protest is, you know, you know that won't go away uh, or several. Like we had just before the pandemic, uh, we had a number of rail lines and roads blocked, right? Uh, or environmentalists. You know, uh, they could just say, oh, we need to bring in the Emergency Act. And then it becomes something that is. So I worry that I do worry about the slippery slope that is created by the imposition of this when I don't think it was necessarily needed. I think the police under the criminal code had plenty they could have done. And I think the state of emergency in Ontario could have been used. But beside that, um, look, we need to start talking to each other again. We need to start having conversations. I think what we're doing here is, you know, obviously a small slice of that. But what I in the research I did last year, 80 percent of the population, they did this in a group called More in Common. They're in the UK, the US, Germany and France. But they came out of the Joe Cox assassination, the MP who died in the UK five years ago, I think. Um, and they've done some comprehensive, like tens of thousands of people they've researched and done surveys. And they've concluded that. 80% of the population is prepared and willing to actually engage in an issue and talk to the other side and to listen to them and to hear what they have to say and maybe find a compromise or at least acknowledge their position. 20%, 10% on either side are not. That 10% on either side is also driving 70% of the political commentary on social media. And so all we're hearing is... Uh, from that 10%, where the vast majority of the noise is coming from that 10% on either side, not the people who would actually say, well, shucks, I'd be happy to sit down and have a chat or coffee with someone. The Guardian newspaper does this. They have a, every Friday, they have a section where two people come together from opposite sides and they have a conversation. We need to be doing that more historically. I mean, I think from the beginning of time, these things are natural. They're not natural anymore. And we need to start finding ways whether they be through, uh, through civil society or through parliament, we need to have more dialogue between each other in order to find you know, a common path or a path that's at least going to be uh, able to address um, you know, the vast majority of people's concerns. And that's not what we're having now. We're not talking to each other. And until we do, this isn't going to change. That's a very good point. Um, and before I go over to Charmaine to get her view on how to fix it, I would just add that I think I think I mentioned this earlier, but I, I think that um, there 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 was a point made about the fact that this is the first invocation of the Emergencies Act. I think on one hand, um, the the speech by the Prime Minister was a, 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 in a way a model example of how a democracy would invoke an Emergencies Act by saying this is not going to overwrite the charter, this is temporary. Um, it struck me as as rather sincere from that perspective. Um, I, I think I think from that perspective, in terms of how other countries may see this, I think that's that's a positive. But I think that the the the, the you know we have a two party system at the federal level. Yes, Charmaine, you're right. We've got we've certainly got a third and fourth party. 
Um, and in fact, we've got three other parties um, that are that are that are represented in parliament. But really, we have a system of state capture where the two largest political parties, uh, the liberals and the conservatives, they control the rules of the electoral system. And as a result, th that system works to their benefit. Um, and so what you saw in parliament really on, uh, was the, uh, the two parties, the governing party and the, and the official opposition, really arguing with each other around the, the, the occupation of Ottawa in particular. And the vacuum that was created, I think part of the problem around the vacuum that was created was that it didn't seem like there was any other solution. Um, somebody had to take control. But I take your point, Kevin, that unfortunately that may result down the road in, 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 in just like the notwithstanding clause has been used more and more since its first invocation, that could, um, that, that could be very much the case. Charmaine, in the Australian context, how can you fix this with your magic wand? I actually do have an answer for you, uh, but I wanted to just quickly get a piece of a couple of things that come before to look back, to look forwards. So I was interested in your premise that we have countries founded on the rule of law and good government, because actually I think that fundamental premise is wrong. We all have countries built on the conquer of an othered people, and we've never gotten past the fact that we liked othering people. It served our purposes, and we built laws around that other, where Indigenous people could go. In America, it was about what Black people could do. Suddenly, the othering is happening to white people, and they're quite upset about it. Uh, but we didn't actually start from good government. It was a wild, wild west for America. Australia took all of the Indigenous land and until 1992 said the country was empty legally. It was considered groundbreaking when we recognised they even existed. So I think we do need to recognise that there has long been a system of people being disenfranchised and just put in a space where they couldn't participate. The great news is, ironically, if a bunch of white people have made this conversation happen, we might start talking about proper democratic renewal and what our laws do. Now, again, so this is me looking forward now. Although, another And I just want to jump in on that one point, if I can, just very quickly. So uh, I, I don't actually disagree with anything you've said. In, in my defense, and I mean this in a, when I say in my defense, I mean it in a more of a humorous way, but, this, you know, peace, order, and good government is kind of, as Carol said, it's kind of ingrained in the Canadian national identity. However, as Carol will know from participating in a, in a conference, a national conference that I chaired a few days ago on gender-based analysis plus, we're seeing that the words patriarchy and colonialism are being inserted into these conversations more and more. So all that to say that I agree with you, I just wanted to make myself look a bit better in the context. <laughs> no, but I agree. So back to you. you know, having worked in international development, we made everything about technical governance so that we didn't have to deal with the structural problems of exactly, as you say, colonialism and patriarchy, right? We never dealt with those. You can have that conversation in development. I oh, will just help you fix these tinier problems on the edges when it was always foundational. Um, so I think that that is useful. It's a shame. It's that management. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was a thing. It was all tiny, tiny to stop us saying, by the way, I mean, first for us as white countries, we stole our own people's land. Then we went to other countries and tried to steal their land. But don't worry, let's not talk about the fundamental starting point of everyone's governments in this modern age either colonialism or post-colonialism. So looking forward, now it is interesting what you were saying also, sorry, I just want to get this piece um, about how worried you are about what your state of emergency might 
um, presage for the future. We've had a real problem there because our dominant two-party system means our Conservatives try to wedge our left party by saying, you don't care about national security, you're weak. So just yesterday, they passed bipartisan legislation to basically allow our immigration minister alone to deport anybody for almost any crime. You steal a bike, that's a conviction. I feel like it, you're out. And the Labor Party had said no to this legislation a year ago, an election's coming. The Liberal, the Tories literally said, we are wedging you. This is to show you don't care about national security. So they passed it after rejecting it. I mean, this is a huge problem. So looking forward, what is the deal with the two-party system? Please watch this space. You will see in Australia, and I'm really interested, and for you, Carol, as well, particularly around women and politics, two things to recommend. One, the concept of what were called here kitchen table conversations, and exactly as Kevin says about dialogues, um, I think it's now about 10 years ago, they... Um, a women's trust had this concept of kitchen table conversations, which were used in one election. It was Tory. The Tory had a large, I think she was a 10% majority. No one thought she was going to get ousted. A, a group of them, 300 community people, had kitchen table conversations, brought together the community. It resulted in her dislodging the Liberal. Uh, she got elected twice. In history, it's the first time an independent has ever handed over to another independent in Australia. There are now about 15 independents who are going to run in our next federal election. Almost all of them are women. It will be very interesting to see whether people who are turned off by our two parties turn to them. The tip being uh, our New South Wales Premier resigned. She had a 21% margin. They are currently counting votes and the independent has made up 20%. There's been a swing of 20% to an independent who had four weeks to prepare her campaign. She could actually win that election. So watch this space around independence, women independence, and them dialoguing with communities so that they're chosen by their communities. Could okay. this break amazing, amazing segue, amazing segue over to Carol, because Carol is an active member of one of the one of the two non-mainstream parties that I prefer to, if mainstream is the right word. But she's also co-chair of Femocracy Now that I made I made reference to. Um, so why don't you wrap it up uh, for us, Carol, with the last word? Last word. It's it's hard to follow those two acts. <laughs> um, I think in terms of uh, where do we go from here, uh, I come back to our individual responsibilities of, of what do we do. Um, and that includes thinking about who we are um, deeply, because uh, a lot of people who have been unsympathetic to the truckers may, may suggest, oh, they don't represent our values. But then who is us and what are we doing to move forward those values if we're not standing up to a trucker or or sorry to a a flag that is at a trucker protest um the second thing i think is to as charmaine says keep an eye on that space because in the two uh, two elections that i've been involved in and kevin maybe you've seen a lot more of this shift but um i'm seeing that a lot of people are becoming, I, I see it more like the Wizard of Oz. It's like, yeah, maybe there's this big machine out there, but who's behind the machine? 
not really sure if anyone's even there actually and so um so I think that that's, that's what we're going to be seeing more of, uh, whether it's in the, I, I see it as a talent attraction piece. It, you, you can't get good talent to just follow the Wizard of Oz necessarily. So um, how that plays out will be interesting. Um, and I think that if we can see also better education of ourselves and our politicians, ourselves as citizens and our politicians to have these conversations, that will be important because they will need to be guided if, or else they will be usurped by those who are controlling the Facebook feeds and everything. Um, and I guess as a last point, it's important not just to look back at these institutions for what they were in terms of ways to manage conquered peoples or sort of conquered peoples. Um, Let's think about the fact that paper was really hard to come by back then, and uh, there was no internet <laughs> or telephones or anything, and and education was not certainly as accessible as it is now. Um, I look at the the legal profession, for instance, and think, uh, well, three of us here are lawyers, for instance, and we're allowed to show up at the bar, we're allowed to do things that other people can't do. But part of the reason used to be because we had this common law system that required us to actually have the laws in our office, the, the books of law in our office. That's all available on the Internet now. Like that's actually open to the public and is technically um, something that should advance our societies. But um, if we don't look at the gap between how those institutions, how they were made and what they served back then, um, structurally and technically, then um, then we kind of miss out on the opportunity to shape shape it in the context of now and and tomorrow in terms of oh we can have these conversations like we're talking to Australia right now <laughs> and um, and we can have these discussions and we can build bridges but um, we need political institutions that actually keep up with these times. Wow, what a perfect way to end, end the conversation. Thank you, Carol. Um, so Carol Chan in Moncton, New Brunswick, uh, Kevin DeVoe at Eastern Passage, uh, Nova Scotia and Charmaine Rodriguez in Melbourne, Australia. I myself am in Moncton, New Brunswick. And you've been listening to the Politics and uh, Public Finance uh, podcast with myself, Jeff DeBro. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to and go over to the YouTube page and hit that subscribe button and we will see you next time. Thank you again to all of you very much for, uh, for a very prolific discussion. Mm -hmm.